something over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the promised Messiah. And then, of course, as we study in the New Testament, we see Jesus fulfilling those prophecies in amazing detail. The prophecies are, as I said, amazing. They are detailed. They are specific. And Jesus, when he came to earth, fulfilled them all. One of the very powerful lines of argumentation that we would offer to prove that Jesus is the Messiah is that he fulfilled those prophecies. Now, there are other things that prove Jesus was the Son of God, but one of the powerful proofs is the fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament, showing that Jesus, of course, uh, is divine and he is the only begotten Son of God. Tonight, we want to study one of those prophecies, one of those prophetic passages about the Messiah. Tonight, we want to talk about the prophecy that is often called Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks. And it's really, I think, quite amazing and very faith-building to look to that prophecy, see how Daniel made the prediction hundreds of years before Christ came and how it was fulfilled in great detail. We're going to study that for just a few minutes tonight. Before we get to it, though, we want to stop to thank you for coming, for making the extra effort to be present. Uh, we know that the weather is improved. It's not perfect, but it's much improved over what it was, and we're glad that you're able to be here and that you have an interest in being here. We have visitors tonight. We're grateful for our visitors. Please come back whenever you can. Let's talk about Daniel and the 70 weeks. We're going to be looking especially in Daniel chapter 9, and I want you to turn your Bibles there so that we can read some of those verses together. But first of all, we want to talk about sort of the historical context in which Daniel made these statements. Daniel knew from Jeremiah's prophecy that the period of the captivity was about over. Now remember, Daniel was one of the first ones taken captive when Judah was falling under Babylonian captivity. There were actually three different takings of captives. Daniel was among the first. And we've often studied there in the first chapter of Daniel how he and other uh, uh, promising young men were taken to be trained in the ways of the Babylonians. And Daniel, you remember, would not allow himself to be defiled with the special food and drink that the, that the king of Babylon was offering. And he was blessed. And, and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we know the story, right? Daniel was among those first captives taken. And he's going to live all through that period of the Babylonian captivity and see the return, uh, how the people of God were allowed to return back to Jerusalem and Judea. He had risen, as you know, to a position of high prominence in, in the government of Babylon and then later in the government of the Medes and Persians as well. When, the, when they overran the Babylonians, Daniel was elevated even uh, in that second kingdom that had control for uh, a period of time. And so Daniel was a great man for sure. Now, he knew that the period of the time that the captivity was to last was about over. Look in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. It's interesting to me that Daniel knew about Jeremiah's prophecies. 
You know, these were not things that came along later. This wasn't just something that was all sort of contrived by some later author. Jeremiah was a prophet of God, and he had prophesied of these things, and Daniel knew of his prophecies and uh, was aware that the prophecies of Jeremiah predicted a, a captivity of a certain duration. Go to Jeremiah chapter 29. We know what Daniel was reading, what he had been studying, because we can find it there in Jeremiah chapter 29 at verse 10. Thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. So Jeremiah had predicted a captivity of seventy years. Daniel knew that, and he knew that that 70 years was just about to be finished. And so, in the context of that then, Daniel began to pray. He prayed confessing the sins of the people, and he prayed asking for the promised restoration of Jerusalem. There in Daniel chapter 9, now, look at verses 16 and 17. O Lord, according to thy righteousness I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from the city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his, and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon the sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. And so, Daniel was doing a couple things here. One of them was he was confessing his sins and the sins of the people, basically acknowledging that what had happened to them was deserved punishment for the wickedness that had occurred previously, asking God to forgive them, but then also asking that he would fulfill the promise that he'd made to restore Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. And so that was, the, that was what Daniel was praying about, and that's the time frame in which he was doing it. It's going to be revealed to him now uh, that Jerusalem would be restored. But it's also going to be revealed to him far more than that's going to happen. The Messiah is going to come. Skip down to verse 21 in Daniel 9 at verse 21. Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen, of course, Gabriel the angel, whom I had seen at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. And so Daniel's getting an answer to his prayer. Just almost immediately, uh, the angel Gabriel comes with messages. He says, I'm going to give you some understanding. I'm going to reveal some things to you. And so Daniel's prayer is certainly answered. Now, what Gabriel reveals to him is that the Messiah is going to come and that the Messiah is going to have a very important mission. That mission, of course, is, was important not only to Daniel, but important to us because we received the blessing of what Jesus did when he came. But look at verse 24. He said, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. And then skip down to verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. I want us to spend just a few minutes talking about 
what Daniel was told that the Messiah would do. Because this is really important for us. This is valuable information. We need what the Messiah was promised to do. He has now done that, of course, and we have the benefit of it. But just go through the list there. Look at verse 24 again and just sort of comment upon the phrases that are there in verse 24. He says that when the Messiah came, that he would uh, finish transgression and make an end of sins. What Daniel is being told here is that the real problem of the people was not captivity. Now, that's the context in which he'd been praying there in captivity and he wanted them to be restored to their homeland. But basically, the real problem of the people was not that they were in captivity. The real problem of the people was that they had sinned and that they'd caused great offense to God. And so Daniel's being told that when the Messiah comes, he's going to remedy that. He's going to make a solution for the problem of sin. Look in Matthew chapter 21. When the birth of Jesus was being announced in Matthew chapter... not. 21, Matthew 1, verse 21. In Matthew 1, verse 21, when the birth of Jesus was being announced, Joseph was told concerning Mary, She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So when the Messiah came, he was going to provide the solution to the real problem that the people had, and that was the problem of their sins. It also says there in verse 24 that he was going to make reconciliation for iniquity. Of course, sin and iniquity is what separates us from God. We're all familiar with the famous quote from Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And so sin and iniquity, Jesus is going to provide an answer to that. He's going to finish the transgression, make an end of sin. He's going to make reconciliation for iniquity. And we believe, of course, that he certainly did that. Turn in the New Testament to Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, You that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Notice the word there. Just as Daniel said he's going to make reconciliation for iniquity, Paul said he has reconciled us. He's put us back in a right relationship with God or at least made that possible through the things that he did, the life he lived, the death that he died. Daniel was told not only will he do this, He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. There in verse 24. Now we're still in Daniel 9, verse 24. The Messiah, when he comes, is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripe ye are healed. Everlasting righteousness brought in by the Messiah. And then still there in verse 24, he said he's going to seal up vision and prophecy. So get this. Now, these these things are mentioned in verse 24. We're going to look at verse 27 in a minute. Finish transgression, make an end of sin. Make reconciliation for iniquity. Bring in everlasting righteousness. Seal up vision and prophecy. The expression seal up there suggests the idea of bringing to a conclusion or 
or ending something, putting it to an end. And we believe that Jesus did that. That when Jesus came, in his coming, he set in process the means of God's final revelation to mankind and the end of visions and prophecy. All through the Old Testament, we read about people having visions. We read about prophets prophesying about the things God wanted people to know. But Daniel said there's going to be a sealing up of that. Basically, there will be an end of vision and prophecy. Daniel wasn't the only one to predict that. We often make reference to the book of Zechariah in chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13, beginning verse 1. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. There would be a day, a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Okay, when would that be? Well, that would be with the coming of the Messiah, right? The things that Daniel is being told about. In the time when the Messiah will come, there's going to be a fountain open for sin and uncleanness. What would happen in that day? Verse 2, and, in, and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, that they shall be no more remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say to him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. In other words, there's going to be an end to these things. There's not going to be any more vision and prophecy. And anybody who says that they are prophesying will be lying. And even their own mother and father should punish them for having told a lie that they were receiving a revelation when the we see clearly that that was going to come to an end in the time frame of the work that the Messiah would do. Of course, we believe that happened in the first century. And we believe in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning verse 8, we won't take time to read that, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning verse 8, the Apostle Paul foretells the end of spiritual gifts and tells when that would happen. When the revelation of God was finished, then prophecy, tongue-speaking, and all the rest of the miraculous spiritual gifts would come to an end. So Daniel was told all these things are going to happen. It's going to be the work of the Messiah when he comes. Then skip down to verse 27 there in Daniel 9. At verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Uh, oh, excuse me, wait a minute. One other thing that we, we, we've got to pick up from verse 24. Don't go to 27 yet. Stay there in verse 24. It says that through the work of the Messiah, the, the most holy will be anointed. And that's still that's the last phrase there in verse 24. The most holy will be anointed. I think if you're reading the New American Standard Version there, it says the most holy place will be anointed. But if you look at your if you look at your printing there of the New American Standard, the word place is italicized. It's been supplied. The New American Standard translators thought that he was talking maybe something about the temple, the reconstruction of the temple, the anointing of the of the holy place, the most holy place. Uh, I don't. Uh, the wording of that could be talking about a place. Uh, and again, the New American Standard translators apparently thought it was so. And some who believe in the theory of premillennialism have sort of seized on that. And they're looking forward to a future time when Jesus will return and reconstruct the temple in Jerusalem and all of that process that we know that is so clearly denied by the things we've studied about premillennials. This is not talking about the most holy place. This is talking about the most holy one. Uh, 
And I think King James is accurate in translation there when it says to anoint the most holy. You know what the word Christ means? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, Christ. No, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus what? What does Christ mean? The anointed one. And so he was anointed as that holy one uh, in the process of his coming to earth. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. Uh, Daniel was telling that that would be the case. Then, now skip down to verse 27. It says he's going to make a firm covenant. Verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. We're familiar with the prophecy of Jeremiah. Daniel was familiar with the prophecy of Jeremiah, as we pointed out earlier. But in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah told of a future covenant that would be made. We're familiar with the Hebrew writer who quoted from Jeremiah and said it has now happened. Look in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then he then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31, right? He goes on to say, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. I will write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God. They shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach. Every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away, the Hebrew writer says. That's the covenant that Daniel was told. That the Messiah, when he comes, is going to establish a new covenant with the people. We are under that new covenant uh, that was established when Jesus came and died on the cross. And finally there in verse 27, notice it says, In the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Sacrifices were going to end. Why would that be? Well, because Jesus himself supplied the perfect sacrifice. No longer any need for the continuing sacrifices of the Old Testament law of Moses. Look in Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8. It says, Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure in them, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Notice, once for all. So the sacrifices were done away with because Jesus had once for all offered the perfect sacrifice for sin. Well, again, all of that is, is valuable and important to us because Daniel was praying. Daniel was praying for the, the forgiveness of Israel. But what was revealed to him, the answer to his prayer, was way beyond his expectation in that it was revealed to him the Messiah would come and do all of this. All right, so here's the picture. Daniel knows that the 70 years of captivity are drawing to an end. Jeremiah had prophesied 70 years. Daniel's been there the whole time. He can count 70 years. He says that it's got to be about over. So he begins to pray to God, praying for his sins and the sins of the people, that God would forgive them and restore Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. 
Gabriel, the angel, comes to him and reveals that not only is Jerusalem going to be restored, but that the Messiah is going to become as the permanent answer to the problem of sin. Now, what's really interesting here and I think really amazing about Daniel's prophecy is the explanation of when this would all happen. He's told what's going to happen, but he's also given very detailed information about when it would happen. He talks about there in Daniel chapter 9 at verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. 70 weeks. Now, I don't know of anybody who thinks that that was a literal 70 weeks. 70 weeks is less than two and a half years. I mean, less than a year and a half, right? 52 weeks in a year. So 70 weeks would be less than a year and a half. These things didn't happen in a year and a half. Everybody that I know of who studies this understands that this was 70 weeks, not of days, but 70 weeks of years. Each week was seven years. And so he's talking about a period of almost 500 years when all of this would transpire. What were the starting and ending points? This is what I think is really intriguing. Well, he says there that it's going to start, verse 25, that the that the 70 weeks would start. Know, there, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, threescore and two weeks. Uh, and then he goes on to say, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So the start was when the command would be given to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls of the city and so forth. Now the end would be when the Messiah would be cut off. Look at verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. So, so there's going to be seven weeks followed by three score and two. What's three score? Three times twenty, sixty and two. Three score and two, sixty-two years. So after seven and sixty, after sixty, sixty-nine years, the Messiah is going to be cut off. Skip down to verse 27. It says that he's going to be cut off in the midst of the week. He shall, so, uh, so this is going to happen in the, actually halfway through the 70th week. So here's the way that we put the math together on. He says there's going to be seven years. And during that seven years, Jerusalem would be built. But notice at the end of verse 25, he's going to be built in troublesome times. Not that very long ago, we studied the book of Nehemiah, and they had plenty of trouble trying to get everything done in rebuilding Jerusalem. Remember all the opposition that they faced and, and the trouble the, that they had to deal with? So certainly it did happen. Uh, the, the seven years would denote that time period in which they came back to Jerusalem, rebuilt the walls of the city, and so forth, under trouble. Sixty-two years after that would follow, and then half of the 70th week would transpire. Well, if you add that up, 7 and 62 is 69. And that, if you multiply that out, you get 483. And then add three and a half, half of the, of the 70th. And you come up with 486 and a half years. At the end of 486 and a half years, the Messiah is going to be cut off. Right? He's going to be cut off in the middle of that 70th week. So, it's going to start, this, this counting of time is going to start with the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. 
And it's going to end when the Messiah is cut off halfway through the 70th week. How does that all line up in time? Well, is he talking about when Zerubbabel was given the initial permission to take some captives back to Jerusalem and Judea? Uh, we know that there were three, there were three different returns, right? We haven't, it wasn't that long ago when we studied that. Zerubbabel led the first group back. He led that first group back in 586 BC. I don't know if I've got my date right there or not. Uh, I don't think I'm right on that. I think that's supposed to be 536. I think I wrote, I think I got a typo there. Check me out. I think this is supposed to be 536. When we add when we add the dates together, that's too early for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, I think I want this to be 536. Check me on that. Uh, that's what, it's supposed to be five. If you're writing that down, that's supposed to be 536 for when when Zerubbabel was given the permission to take the first group back. So 536, go forward 486 and a half years, and you end up in 50 BC. That's too early. That's before Jesus came, right? That's too early. So it wasn't talking about the command that Zerubbabel had to go back. What about Nehemiah? Nehemiah led a group back in 444 B.C. If you add the 486 and a half years to that, that comes out A.D. 42. That's too late, right? That's after Jesus has lived and died and been gone for a number of years. So the command that Nehemiah received to go back, that's too late. So it, I don't think it's Zerubbabel. I don't think it's Nehemiah because the time frames don't add up. What about Ezra? Well, Ezra led. Ezra was actually in the middle. It was, the, the, the order is Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra was in the middle here. He, he brought a group back in 457 B.C. If we add the 486 and a half, it comes out to A.D. 30 the very year that Jesus died. Isn't that pretty incredible? I mean, that you, can, that you can track the command to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem, add the years that Daniel's being told about, and you come out with the very year that Jesus died on the cross. The Messiah cut off, right? Now, the only objection to that is, uh, did Ezra really have a command to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem? You know, we, what we usually say is, Zerubbabel came and made efforts to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel, came, I mean, uh, Ezra came back and sort of strengthened the people spiritually, rebuilt the people. Nehemiah came back and rebuilt the walls. So are we, are we having to sort of play with the, play games with the numbers here to make it work? I think the answer is no, because Ezra actually did have authority to rebuild the city. Look in Ezra 7. And Ezra 7, verse 6, uh, it was told to Ezra, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And there went up some of the children of Israel and the priests and the Levites and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. Skip over to chapter 9, verse 9. In chapter 9, verse 9, it was explained by Ezra and the others, For we are bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, 
and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. So Ezra actually did have authority to go back and rebuild the city. Now, he didn't get much done on that assignment until uh, several years later when Nehemiah came. What is that? About 13 years later when Nehemiah came, then they actually got to the building of the wall of Jerusalem. But it had been authorized under Ezra. And so that fits then. The starting point fits from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. Well, that's the, the commission given to Ezra in 457. And it goes, the end of the period of time is when Messiah was cut off in the midst of the 70th week. 486 years later is exactly A.D. 30, the year that Jesus died on the cross to accomplish all the things that we previously talked about, the Messiah's mission. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but I think that's just really faith-building stuff. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing prophecy. It's very specific. As we've talked before, one of, the, one of the things that critics are forced to do with the book of Daniel is to say, there's no way. They would say, there's no way that anybody could have been that accurate in predictions. And so they, are, they try to argue that Daniel had to have been written later after the events had already transpired. Somebody came along and wrote a book, called it Daniel, and, and tried to pretend like it was from an ancient time. Of course, uh, we have all kind of proof that that's a false accusation. The only answer is Daniel truly did receive this revelation from the, from the angel Gabriel and told specifically about the, the great coming of the Messiah and told exactly when he would come and how it would all unfold in time. Just one other thing to consider. Consider that Daniel was also told the consequences that would result by the Messiah being rejected. Still there in Daniel chapter 9, look at verses 26 and 27. After threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So, uh, I think what we see there is though, although it's outside of the 70 week period, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans is clearly included in this prophecy that, that Daniel made. Now, it doesn't fit in the 70 weeks. We know that that came, you know, the, the 70 weeks, or the cut off, the cutting off of the Messiah happened in 30 AD, but 40 years later, not within the purview of the 70 week period, but there was a final destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And Daniel is foretelling that here because the Messiah was going to come, but the Jews were going to reject him. And because of their rejection, Jerusalem was going to be left desolate. Jesus referred to that when he predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in the text that Britt read for us earlier. Look at Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus said to his disciples, See ye not all these things? He's at the site. He's at the temple site. He's at with all the buildings of the temple there. He says, See ye not all these things? Verily I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, right? 
Notice what he links with that. Look at verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Jesus said this place is going to be destroyed. And it's what Daniel the prophet talked about. And then, of course, as we skip down to verse 34, he says that's coming soon. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And so Jesus referenced Daniel when he was himself talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. So Daniel Daniel knew the Messiah is coming. Here's the promise the Messiah is coming. But the people are going to reject him. And as a result of that, this city and everything about it is going to be destroyed. It's interesting that even the secular historian Josephus recognized the connection between Daniel's prophecy and the destruction of Jerusalem. Here's a quote from Josephus. Daniel also wrote concerning the Roman government and that our country should be made desolate by them. And so even Josephus understood there was a connection between this 70-week prophecy of Daniel and the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, that's our study for tonight. I hope it's uh, encouraging to you. I, I find that really intriguing, and especially when you see how it fits together in time so perfectly. How could that be so? How could that be so? Well, there's only one answer, right? By inspiration. Only by inspiration could that be so. No man, no man could have predicted that. Daniel just sitting there trying to dream things up in his own mind could not have written that down. He could not have come up with that on his own. The only way that he could have done that was by inspiration, and he did. And that's, a, that's to us a faith-building thing when we consider how God has revealed his truth to us through the Word. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to sing a song of invitation. We haven't talked about what one must do to be saved, but we wouldn't want to end without giving everyone that opportunity. If you've not obeyed the gospel plan of salvation, we hope you'll do so without delay. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. We're ready to assist you. We'd also be glad to study more with you. If you're a Christian already, but you need the prayers of the saints in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.